This is hell. Greetings, listeners. Chuck's still out. He's recuperating from surgery. Seems to have gone well, and he'll be back in soon. But until such a time as it is, you've got the board operators playing classics. Border operators like me, Dan Hill. We'll be playing episodes from our storied 28-year history. Today I'll be playing an interview with William C. Anderson and Zoe Zamudzi about the anarchism of blackness. And after that, we'll have an all-new Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi. But before we get to all that, let's check in on the question from hell. This week's question from hell is, who are you thanking for your service? Who are you thanking for your service? If you have an answer to this week's question from hell, head on over to our Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and post it there. By the end of the show tomorrow, we'll choose the very best answer, and we'll award it with some This Is Hell merchandise. I was combing through the archives, and this interview caught my eye. It's an interview Chuck did in 2017 with William C. Anderson and Zoe Samudzi about the anarchism of blackness. I'm curious what this. I'm curious to hear what they have to say about that. And uh, it sounded like Zoe was even in the studio for this one, so I'll bet it pops. So let's take a listen. This is hell. Liberalism has failed black America. Negotiating with bigots is not something to be tolerated. There has to be something else. There has to be something more. Here to hopefully help us understand why liberalism has failed and what can be done to succeed in the fight for equality. Here in studio with us is Zoe Samudzi. Hi, good Welcome. morning. Nice to meet you. Nice, Very meet nice you to meet too. you. Uh, Zoe Samudzi is a black feminist writer and Ph.D. student in medical sociology at the University of California, San Francisco. Her current research is focused on critical race theory and biomedicalization. So why are you here in Chicago? I'm here for a conference at Northwestern. Oh, really? What's the conference? It's the African Seminar, so it's looking at different issues in black studies, African-American studies, African studies. How's it going so far? It's been really interesting. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, And she wrote a piece with William C. Anderson that was posted at Roar Magazine's website. The article is called The Anarchism of Blackness. The Democratic Party has led black America down a dead end. The sooner we begin to understand that the more uh, realistically we will be able to organize against fascism. Do we have William on the line as well. William, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How about you? Good. William C. Anderson is a freelance writer. His work has been published by The Guardian, MTV, Pitchfork, among others. Many of his writings can be found at Truthout or at the Praxis Center for Kalamazoo College, where he is a contributing editor covering race, class, and immigration. He is speaking to us live from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, Zoe, let's start with you because you are here in studio. Uh, In your article, you write that liberalism and party politics have failed black America. How has liberalism, let's just focus on liberalism, How has liberalism failed black America? I think um, in the most recent election, it's really clear that the electoral strategy for the Democratic Party has simply been not being as bad as Republicans. And in that way, they can continue to count on the black vote, but they don't have to actually deliver anything for black people. And we, we saw overwhelmingly that black people voted for Hillary Clinton, and yet in this new a moment of resistance, elect- of, of partisan resistance to Donald Trump and to the Republican Party. He, Democrats haven't really been doing anything to, you know, quote unquote, return the favor to uh, their incredibly loyal constituent base in the black community. William, why do you think uh, that uh, the Democratic Party isn't doing? Why do you think that liberalism uh, has failed the Democrat or has failed Black America because, as Zoe was just saying, uh, it looks like they've been uh, taking Black America for granted. So why do you think that liberalism has failed Black America? Um, the reason liberalism has failed Black America is because uh, when you really look at the the party politics of uh, the Democratic Party, what they are <clears throat> are doing is they they take people who are organizable folks, people who have passion, people who have drive, um, who have a desire to make uh, change in this country. A lot of their constituents are good people, obviously, who 
do want to uh, do the right thing and do have uh, good values. And they take those folks and they kind of um, funnel them into this vortex uh, where where they absorb these uh, organizable people into things like the nonprofit industrial complex and with NGOs and you know unions and burgeoning movements that are happening. They take these folks and they co-opt from all of those places that I just listed. They co-opt people from these places and they put them into this this kind of hamster wheel where nothing is actually being accomplished. It just it just all ends up being uh, symbolic when so many people in the Democratic Party are tied to the same corporations, tied to the same really, really violent structures uh, that uh, disenfranchise folks and, and oppress people. It's, they're just they're funneling people into the to the same um, into the same uh, structures that they purport to you know be against. So Zoe, do you think that it is that there is energy that is being distracted into the into the party that there is an attempt by the party to empower? black Americans, but at the same time, because the system has so many shortcomings, it just eventually leads to kind of a sense of futility or even disenfranchisement, even despite the fact that there's an attempt at empowerment. I think that, you know, we are in the way that the Democratic Party praises the efforts of John Lewis, for example, and and these old school pioneers of the civil rights movement. I think in that praise of the civil rights movement is implicit or implicit to that praise is the fact that like the most important gains for black America are are through uh, legislative reforms, are through working with the system, through this idea of, of reconciliation, of, of, of cooperation, of reaching across party lines and accomplishing something together. But the problem with legislative gains being made within an, uh, a, a political system that doesn't change fundamentally is like, who are the arbiters of, 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 interpreting, of interpreting the legislation in the favor of the black community? Who are going to be the people that are giving black people the rights and who are interpreting these laws equitably? So when you have partisan turnovers of judgeships and partisan turnovers of legislators, we see how quickly the gains that are made through legislative reform can be rolled back. We saw parts of the Voting Rights Act being gutted. We're looking at all of this gerrymandering and redistricting that are that are um, that are changing the outcome of elections. And so, and yet, because of this really intense fear of of black radical organizing, of of kind of black revolutionary activity, of these massive cataclysmic transformative changes, there is this really anti-black move, as William said, to co-opt this energy into something that is containable, into something that is organizable. Um, And they weaponize, I think, the civil rights movement in a lot of the language around peace and justice um, to do that. Uh, and I want to get back to that uh, in just a second, but I, I, but Zoe, you said something earlier that I wanted to have uh, William comment on. Uh, why isn't being better than Republicans on race issues for the Democratic Party? Why isn't that low bar? Why isn't that enough anymore for Black Americans to be supporting the Republic or the Democratic Party? Why isn't just being better than Republicans enough? Because the Republicans. Um, I, I don't think it's hyperbole when 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 we start uh, talking about uh, neo-fascist movements uh, that stem from the Republican Party. The GOP is um, is so bad that being better than them, and you know, being just a little bit tiny little bit to the left of them, or um, you know, uh, saying things that are largely symbolic about uh, being moralistic and and being better people and having better uh, morals and things than the Republicans. It it just, it's it's not good enough. Um, We need an actual left in this country. Um, There is no real functioning left opposition in this country. Um, And the Democratic Party is like always essentially um, compromising. That is, that is, their definition of um, being the opposition right now as it stands is compromising and saying, okay, well, we're willing to work with you. And that is not how opposition works. So if, if we're, if we're going to actually, actually accomplish anything, there needs to be a, a real left. There needs to be a, 
actual left in this country. And that is extremely important because if we're following the Democrats, what we're going to end up doing every single time is going along with the coat the coattail of whatever the Republicans are doing and say, well, you know, you're you want to do this. Well, just let us have this. That's not that's not a movement. That's not resistance. That is just complete compromise. And that's it's just completely pointless and a waste of people's energy because we're always going to lose that way. Yeah, and unfortunately, the one thing that the Democrats do well is compromise, and that's a very unfortunate <laughs> thing. Zoe, uh, why, you know, uh, following up on William, uh, why do you think in the U.S., why isn't there a left? Are we still suffering from the Red Scare of the 1950s? Are we still, uh, I mean, what what is the reason why there seems to be no real... You know, especially from the Democratic Party, the opposition party, supposedly, uh, any real appetite for left-leaning policies? Um, I think the problem with the Democratic Party and the problem, I guess, in, in understanding why there's not really a difference in a lot of ways between the Democrats and the Republicans is that white supremacy is bipartisan, right? So simply because you are slightly less bad than the Republican Party doesn't mean that you actually have any desire for the actualization of black liberation. It doesn't mean that you actually have any desire to see a power structure toppled and overturned. And and I the reason for there not being a left, I guess, you know, when it comes at least to black organizing, everybody got killed. Um, the government did a really good job of of making people informants, of turning people against one another, and then straight up assassinating so much of the leadership and and with the assassinations of the leadership and the rise of these these incredibly expansive surveillance states and the expansion of 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 the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration i think at least from from maybe from a black leftist a young black leftist point of view there's something incredibly scary about speaking truth to power and as maybe from white leftists there's, you know, an uncomfortable habit that they have of walking into spaces of color and telling black people how to understand class and how to understand um, structures. And there's a, a, a fragmenting because of white leftist own investment in white supremacy that is alienating to other people. And and there's just a real difficulty in in left sectarianism for us to kind of realize that, OK, so maybe we have differential understandings of how a revolutionary state is formed. Um but ultimately, we we share an enemy. So how do we funnel our commonalities into a space where it can be mo- our energies can be mobilized, mobilized, and we can act towards the same thing? There, yeah. Uh, William uh, Zoe was talking about the uh, threat of violence and the violence that has been committed against uh, black rights uh, leadership in the past. And earlier she was talking about the inability for our electoral system to be a way towards reform, uh, permanent reform, uh, the kinds of permanent reform that we need. How much do you think voters realize the fragility of reform, that once uh, a group gets rights, that it is a constant fight for those rights into the future, that those rights are far from being set in stone, that they can be just torn up and thrown away overnight? Um, I'm not, I can't really say how much I feel like people realize that. I think it varies um, depending on where you are. Um, I'm actually talking to you um, from Birmingham, Alabama right now. And I grew up in, in Shelby County where, uh, you know, the uh, Voting Rights Act was infamously uh, targeted. The That situation um, in 2013, uh, uh Shelby County versus Holder, I think that it it was a prime example of the fact that all of the gains that we make um, with this current system, all of the gains that we make can easily be taken away. And when you have uh, a party like the Democratic Party, again, who is compromising constantly, it just it it is really a dead end. Um, there has to be. Um, some sort of independent political power that needs to be organized, and it has to it has to move away from these structures that have anti-black violence embedded in them. Mm-hmm. They have really, really, really terrible um, histories uh, relating to genocide and, ensla- and enslavement, the Electoral College, 
um, obviously has a, a deep history entrenched within it, um, embedded in it of of um, the the fact that it was it was really like you know structured around uh, around enslavement and the three the three steps compromise. So when you tell black people like, hey, just get out and vote Democrat, um, it completely undermines the fact that our our death and our demise and uh, the brutality that's been leveled against us for centuries is is a part of the of the very things that you are telling us are are going to bring us liberation so it's it is it's kind of counterproductive um to think that we're going to be freed uh by the very things that have uh that have brutality against us uh, built into them it's it's kind of absurd really to think about Zoe, uh, what happens when and if the people within the Democratic Party compromise with the bigotry and the hate that seems to be uh, increasingly normalized with the Trump administration? What happens if that kind of compromise, ha- what will take place? We're fucked. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, honestly, we are because... I mean, I remember when the that that GOP office in North Carolina burned down, and the the response of progressives was to raise thirteen thousand or however many dollars for that office. When in North Carolina, like trans rights are under really brutal attack, and all of that money could have been mobilized for a community that's being directly harmed by that state institution. And I think that this obsession, this 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 democratic obsession to like uh, to, to moral sanctimony and being able to claim that we are better than them, we are more virtuous and more righteous than them, and that's why we try to compromise, is really going to mean the demise of so many marginalized communities because that morality completely and always fails to translate into any kind of material su- support or or safety or security or protection or benefit. And I think. If, if all the Democratic Party has is filibustering and all they have, because, you know, they filibustered, but every single Trump nominee has been has been confirmed. Right. You know, so and, and now we have people in party that in, in, in power that are going to be chipping away at not only, you know, rights based gains, but also communities and, and institutions for protection. And and if the Democrats don't realize that just being nominally better than Republicans doesn't actually mean anything. Um, I, I'm really worried about what's going to happen in the coming four years. William, many people have been critical of the Democratic Party and whatever constitutes the left, which there really isn't one here in the United States. A lot of people have been critical of uh, what they see as a lack of political imagination on the, on the left that they don't seem to be seeing on the right, that they believe that there is more political imagination on the right. Do you believe there's more political imagination on the right than the left? And what explains the, the uh, willingness to embrace uh, unique ideas on the right that we're not seeing when it comes to the Democratic Party? Um, unfortunately, I do agree that there is uh, more political imagination on the right, and I think that they are better organized, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, I think that the Tea Party was a prime example of that. And, um, you know, Zoe said something that was uh, was really important about people being scared um, to, to, to be left because of people dying and, and being killed uh, uh, in, in, in the movement, uh, the violence, the horrible violence that the Black Liberation Movement has seen and other movements have seen. Um, all, of, all of that is really um, what me and Zoe were talking about when we, when we were talking about, you know, the the, the, necess- the the necessity of, you know, blackness and the anarch the anarchistic nature of it, really, if we're going if we're going to go forward, there it needs to be there needs to be a lot of of um, of of alternatives and and options as far as organizing because these these movements that we've seen in the past, uh, they've been targeted. In, in ways where leadership has been, you know, assassinated, has been, uh, has been suppressed. We, we are the people who are going to bring a, 
bring about our own liberation. It's going to be people who are working class. It's going to be the gangs. It's going to be people on welfare. It's going to be people who have to deal with the police every day. These are the folks who are going to bring about our liberation. It's not going to come from one leader. And and a a lot of that political imagination that is is lacking um on on the side that that we are on is you know people have really people have really kind of bought into this idea that um Martin Luther King and and nonviolence are the only ways to achieve liberation and that's something that the Democratic Party espouses a lot and it is it's extremely problematic because it erases history it erases um it erases large parts of not only King's legacy, but other parts of the civil rights movement. You know, they don't talk about the fact that when in Birmingham, when their children's march was happening and people were getting sprayed by hoses and having dogs sticked on them, there were also black folks out there with bottles and rocks and knives and they were, they were fighting back. But they don't talk about that when you watch documentaries. They don't talk about that when you get this neoliberal retelling of history. There were people out there who were actually actively defending themselves. It's young people, older folks as well. And they just, they, you know, you don't hear about those sorts of things. So there needs to be um, a real education around the fact that that we we have to build something that is actually sustainable and that is not imaginary and that isn't romanticized. And so I, that's going to have to happen through real organizing and real um, real movement to the left. And that's something that the right has been very good at because they they are they are actually absolutely intolerant of anything that they consider too watered down or or too easy going well um it just needs to happen on on the left as well we need to become pretty pretty um firm about what our values are and what we're not going to stand for and what we're not going to accept from Dem- people in the Democratic Party from politicians who are trying to appeal to us, we need to set the standard and it needs to be a, a line drawn and it doesn't need to be any, you know, any kind of playing around with it. It just needs to be set there and it needs to be it needs to be really, really firm. We are speaking with William C. Anderson and Zoe Samudzi. They wrote the Roar magazine article, The Anarchism of Blackness. Go ahead. No, and if I could just make a point to the idea of the fact that um, Republicans are so much more imaginative um, when it comes to neo-Nazis, there it's not, and and when it comes to kind of this, this 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 thing about us having dialogue with neo-Nazis, which I absolutely don't agree with in the slightest, neo-Nazis do not just have a politic, they do not just have a set of ideologies and things that they think about lesser peoples. There is a material goal that people are moving towards, and if they are emulating Nazism. This goal is, you know, the kind of fragmenting of communities, the extermination of of peoples in order to ensure for the safety of whiteness. And that is very much the ethos of the Republican Party. And perhaps they're they're not working towards a system that mirrors Nazi Germany. Well, I hope not. But but they have a goal and the goal is this preservation of whiteness, a preservation of the interests of of the capitalist class, the preservation of the interests of of the capitalist system. And and liberalism in my opinion is apolitical. There is no there is no end goal that they see as being a a, a, a structural institutional material thing that they can say, here we've made it. There are values that they claim to espouse, but those values do not themselves amount to a system. And so I think that there's a lack of political imagination on the left left because we haven't necessarily seen a system that that functions in the way that we want to. We have all of these examples that people can be working towards on the left, but in terms of the Democratic excuse me, the Democratic Party, there is not that system to emulate and and to move towards. There's simply a reaction to the Republican Party. Um, And I think when you're constantly reacting to something, you are not putting your energy into generating something, into imagining something. And Mm -hmm. so the energy for imagination and the energy for really thinking about what the world we want to live in looks like is being siphoned into constantly trying to work with this horribly racist, genocidal, fascistic group of people instead of mm-hmm. working with a base that's been loyal to them and saying, what 
do your communities need? What would be a better way of keeping communities safe that don't necessarily force you to call the police? What does it mean to have um, a system of entitlements, not just rights, of entitlements to food and to housing and to education? What does it mean to have that? Um, and they don't they don't want to do that because they don't want that system to come into existence as much as they right. think they claim to. Well, Zoe, just a real quick follow up. I've been trying to think about I've been thinking about this, too. Like, what does the Democratic Party stand for? What do Democrats want? And I, I'm always wrong. Keep that in mind. All right. I think that what they want is or the people who are attracted to the Democratic Party, especially the Hillary, the Clintonian wing of the Democratic Party. They want to be centrist. They don't want to be right wing. They don't want to be left wing. They just want to be centrist. They want to be bipartisan. They don't want to be seen as partisan in mm -hmm. any way. They want to be seen as, as uh, William was saying, is seen as compromisers. Is being a centrist political party, is that a sustainable or winning strategy in politics? No, it's like being neutral. It's like pretending... It's like it's like when everyone is like, oh, I'm Switzerland to this, but they don't realize that Switzerland allowed the Nazis to like <laughs> use their banks and keep the money that they stole from people like in that country. And that's how I feel about the Democratic Party. They want to come off as being, you know, we 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 are here to negotiate. We are here to construct a better world for all. But when you're fighting against someone or against a group of people that is actively attempting to 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 strip people of their rights what does it mean to to meet that person halfway what does it mean to meet halfway somebody who believes that like if ever you go to prison you do not deserve to have rights that if you are a poor person you do not deserve to have access to xyz if you're disabled you should not be able to do this what does it mean to make a compromise with somebody who or with with a party that envisions a world where only certain people have any kind of access to anything and what do you lose in 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 the integrity of your politics when you think that negotiating with terrorists is a viable political strategy. Uh, William, how much is this not just about Trump, but about the Republican Party in general? And how much is this kind of rise of the normalization of bigotry and hatred is not something that's out of the blue and new because I think far too often people are focusing on Trump instead of the overall policies of the Republican Party mm -hmm. and far too often I'm hearing from people saying that this was a complete shock that nobody saw this kind of rise of bigotry and hatred coming and that it came completely out of the blue hmm. I mean that's <laughs> the, um, <laughs> that's that 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 is um, something that is absolutely um, kind of ridiculous to me uh, when you hear people talk about um, the the shock of uh, this situation because this country this country was founded on everything that it's doing right now it's it was founded on uh, the racism it was founded on xenophobia it was founded on genocide and enslavement so this country is in a predicament now where um, people are hopefully realizing that you, we have to deal with white supremacy and we have to deal with the ideology of whiteness because everything that's happening is based around the fact that this is a sickness. This country has a sickness and the ideology of white supremacy and of whiteness is that sickness. And until we actually deal with that, until we actually deal with the fact that we have a society built around white supremacy, we're not going to actually see any real changes. Mm -hmm. So Trump is a symptom of that. It's, he's a symptom of white America trying to um, maintain itself, the institutional white supremacy trying to preserve itself in this country, the refugee crisis, um, the, uh, the the rising uh, um, scare around immigration, the xenophobia, this is all playing. And the president, the really too, the presidency of uh, of Barack Obama, as symbolic as it was, these things really, 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 really put a large uh, amount.
lot of fear into the white Western world. Mm-hmm. Um, this 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 diversity movement, the the things that really really started scaring people were is was seeing uh, these faces, these 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 colored faces that were still preserving white supremacy. <laughs> but they were just not white faces, and um, this it's it's very apparent that white America is is struggling with the idea of um, of losing power, even though it's it hasn't been actually losing power. So Trump is Trump is that um, Marine Le Pen in France, she's that, um, and the the growing right movement throughout Europe. All of all of this is a response to that, and the the western world uh is 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 white folks are organizing themselves throughout the west to try to preserve white supremacy and to try to preserve whiteness and it's 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 being doubled down doubled down on and we're being doubled down on in a way where it's it's just it's kind of, it's just really ridiculous because there there isn't there isn't anything that's actually really truly been threatening uh, white supremacy to the extent that you would you would think that a, a Trump would be necessary because Trump is he's just really really not smart he's not um, <laughs> a president who's who's like functional in any way he's just really 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 just a bad 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 incarnation of those uh, resentments that I'm talking about so the fact that you're willing to sink to that level mm. to put somebody like Donald Trump in the presidency just shows how sick how sick white supremacy is because this is somebody who's going to hurt everybody mm-hmm. you know he's going to hurt everybody he, and you know including the folks who voted for him so it's just like we have to deal with that sickness we have to deal with it and until that happens we're we're always going to be um be facing these problems that we're talking about it has to be dealt with you know, especially when you consider gerrymandering, uh, what you guys write about how you believe mobilization has been more successful in attaining black American rights than the efforts of any political party. Uh, it, it makes me think more so that these are the kind of strategies, as you point out in your article, that could be used by others, that people could learn from these kind of mobilization strategies that black Americans have used, especially when you're being disenfranchised through things like uh, gerrymandering. So, Zoe, uh, what kind of mobilization do you think that other people who want to have a real opposition, a real left in this country, can learn from black American political strategy and movements? Um, so there is a book called um, Hillbilly Nationalists. I forget the rest of the title, but it's about um, poor white folks organizing not necessarily like in Black Panther spaces, but like taking that organizing and that consciousness raising and and trying to you know construct this critical mass in like poor white areas, and I think that's something that leftism has a really bad habit of for all of its um, discussion of like proletarianization and the working class whatever is this tendency to not actually engage poor white people quite enough, and I I kind of don't blame people for 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 saying, you know, the Democrats are focusing on the middle class, but what about us and what about our needs? And then pivoting towards the right because that's the only political party that actually is speaking to the needs of, like, poor white people. Unfortunately, the needs that they're speaking to are to kind of reinvest folks in white supremacy, but I think... I think the people who worked alongside the Black Panthers um, in poor white neighborhoods to try to figure out how do we deliver services in this particular way? How do we communicate the fact that people don't have these services? You know, how do we communicate the fact that it's not just about, um, you know, my time will come if I continue to work hard? It's like, no, the white supremacy needs to have poor white people as well. Um, I think that that's that would be incredibly important. Uh, William, you write that uh, blackness is in so many ways anarchistic. African Americans as an ethno-social identity comprised of descendants from enslaved Africans have innovated new cultures and social organizations, much like anarchism would require us to do outside of state structures. What are some of those anarchistic uh, black structures that, being white, I am certain I am not aware of? (laughs) 
I mean, really, uh, what we were what we were getting at in the piece um, is is black existence in this country um, is uh, is largely framed um, by our existence in the afterlife of slavery mm-hmm. and being seen uh, as as perpetually as as um, as slaves. Um, obviously, blackness is is much more dynamic than that and much more complex than that but this this society um has has framed uh blackness in in such a way that really um we we uh we we have started and really always kind of um, existed in in this way that is very unique and um is is really can, it really has a lot of a lot of potential to be threatening to the state. Mm-hmm. The 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 nature of of black existence um, is 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 filled with so many so many things that can be uh, utilized um, to resist and to uh, build an active liberation movement that that actually makes real accomplishments and it's just all throughout history it's all throughout history with numerous uh uprisings against slavery with the black movement going you know into reconstruction going to fighting against jim crow black people have a beautiful history in this country of resistance and a lot of that is based around the fact that we are a uh, a people in this country who are are seen as as not truly being being citizens even though um I'm descended from enslaved Africans even though I'm descended from people who have been been in this country and were brought to this country um you know obviously for enslavement who were brought to this country and have been here for so long I I can still get told you know, go back to Africa mm. as if, as if, you know, my, my people were not brought here, you know, a very, very long time ago. So that existing outside of citizenship, existing outside of Americanness, um, is, is what really is one of those underlying factors I'm talking about is the, with, you know, the anarchism of blackness. Mm. So it's, it's, it's amazing to think about how that can actually be utilized um for for the struggle because everything that we are talking about accomplishing and need or needing to accomplish it can happen inside the realms of that anarchism of that of that kind of sporadic nature that black people have always had to have to survive to to fight against uh structures that were always trying to um you know, confine or kill us or or brutalize us at every turn is 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 really inherent in our in our survival. So everything, essentially, like what I'm saying, is everything that that we need is is already inside of us mm-hmm. as Black people, and that you know that uh, is is something that you can look at other people of color in this country too, and there's movements and histories there as well that that folks can build off of, but it's 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 just absolutely necessary that we recognize that we have a very rich history of rebellion in this country that we can learn from and that we can build off of and and use right now in this moment it's a, it's just important Zoe how much do you think issues of race are avoided out of discomfort over how much they may reveal the shortcomings of what the US is compared to what we believe it is what we believe it is supposed to be do we not address racial equality because it reveals that yes there is inequality in the nation of we the people that race is just for Americans kind of embarrassing Absolutely I mean uh you know D'Angelo wrote that uh, uh academic article about white fragility talking about how Generally, you know, even good white folks are much more offended at the idea of being called racist than they are by the centuries of racism and white supremacy and settler colonialism that are inherent to the United States. And I think it's really interesting the ways in which like allyship or white allyship gets weaponized if black folks start talking, sharing these inconvenient truths. I think 
it's really interesting the 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 great pains that even people who are supposed to be progressives take to 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 defend the constitution right um people saying oh this is unconstitutional that donald trump would do this absolutely yes it is unconstitutional but also the founding document of the united states the declaration of independence where thomas jefferson wrote all men are created equal was written by a man who literally owned other people and when we pay this homage to the founding fathers and we thank them for profusely for their efforts, we have to understand that the American Revolution was fought to codify citizenship for property owners and, and right. to centralize privatization and property rights as opposed to equity and equality and egalitarianism and all of these quote-unquote liberal enlightenment values in the foundation of this country. And so... Absolutely. People are deeply invested in the Constitution without understanding the way that the Constitution has even been weaponized against folks and the ways in which, again, positive legislation even can change at the drop of a hat. Um, yeah, they're they're very scared of what America represents, because even in the liberal imaginary, it's about equality. It's about this opportunity. It's about all of these things. But what does opportunity mean when you are never given the resources and the ability um, to to move beyond a particular classed or racialized or whatever condition. William, you and Zoe write that the state can only function through abuse, so we can only prevail through organizing grounded in radical love and solidarity. Why do you believe the state can only function through abuse? And then I'll ask Zoe what that you mean by radical love. But why do you think that the uh, uh, state can only function through abuse? Well, going off of what Zoe just said, um, you know, it's, it was just a perfect segue into this. That when when we hear these conversations about Trump, um, so many uh, folks who are liberals uh, come constantly compare, make Hitler comparisons. When you know Hitler was inspired by the genocidal nature of the United States um, and the formation of the state here, there the people who are the founding fathers, the the men who were slave owners, who were genocidal murderers, who are uh, idolized around us and who um, are held in such high regard and and who received accolades for their for their murder and enslavement, um, they they are a great comparison for Trump as well. I mean, really, like when you think about it, the fact that this man has, you know, Andrew Jackson mm. um, as a figure who he looks to as just a perfect example. Make that comparison. Mm-hmm. Make a comparison of Trump to the people who are really uh, um, just absolutely uh, the foundation of, once again, everything that we're dealing with now. So when when you think about that and you, you know, fast forward to to the to the GOP and to everything that's happening now the state is is positioned in a way where we 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 have to just we have to start being honest about um what it what it represents what it is and how it treats us and we cannot nitpick these these little symbolic things like all oh, the founding fathers and the constitution and those things were it was it was lofty lofty ideals you know, on paper that didn't apply to everyone. As simple and plain, these are structures of violence, and they have uh, really kind of, uh, kind of, just hovered over our heads in our existence in this country um, since we've been since we've been here, and it's. It's not. It's not really. It's not sustainable to to try to have movements that that nitpick these these symbolic things from from those structures and from the state and and actually buy into these ideas that are just simply not real. And when we're looking at the GOP now, if you're dealing with people who are not concerned about being racist, who are not concerned about being genocidal, who are not concerned about dropping bombs and and destroying people's lives, destabilizing their country, murdering people's families, when you're dealing with a party that's like that, why in the world would you waste your time uh, 
thinking that you're going to outdo them through some sort of moralism. <laughs> their actions tell you that they're not concerned mm-hmm. about killing, about um, being terrible in general. So why would you think that you can outdo them and, and defeat them through through being moralistic? It's, it's obvious through their actions that they're not concerned about that. So we have to look at the state for what it is, and we have to move away from this very thing that they also buy into because they are very much buying into this idea that the founding fathers and genocide and enslavement that founded this country were things that just kind of had to happen and we should just kind of forget about them and and look at them in a you know in a positive way because it hey it created this great country that we all get to be a part of and that's just absolutely you know it's a farce so zoe what is meant by what do you uh, you and william mean by radical love um so me personally, I mean, we, I think we agree on it for the most part, but me personally, okay. when I talk about radical love and when I think about generating new worlds for us all to inhabit, that for me is fundamentally, it's like it's a spiritual activity because it forces us to completely reorient ourselves with the way that we interact and understand other people. We have to, in order to really see and to love one another, we have to understand what personhood and humanity means outside of the way that we're commodified within racial capitalism. So it's to seize a person for what they are really worth, for not just the 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 value and the capital that they can accrue for this economic system, but what they are worth and what they are intrinsically entitled to as people. The fact that they are entitled to to housing, to safety, to a freedom from violence. And to radically love is to believe that every single person is deserves this thing and that we will fight in service to ensuring that people can live these safer, healthier um, lives and that we can imagine a world that doesn't just allow it, but um, these entitlements are built into the formation of this world. We have been speaking with William C. Anderson and Zoe Samudzi. They co-wrote the Roar magazine article, The Anarchism of Blackness. Zoe is a black feminist writer and Ph.D. student in medical sociology at the University of California, San Francisco. William is a freelance writer. His work has been published by The Guardian, MTV, Pitchfork, many others. Many of his writings can be found at Truth Out or at the Praxis Center for Kalamazoo College, where he is a contributing editor covering race, class, and immigration. One last question for each of you and for for each of you, we have what we do with all of our guests. We end the interviews with the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I'll start with you, William. Blacks are <laughs> far more aware of state violence than whites. I think I can pretty safely say that. Do you think under Trump, whites will soon have a better understanding of that state violence? Ooh. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I really, um, I really have trouble making a prediction there. I, I think that, um, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that white folks are in a position to, to understand state violence the way that black people understand it. And I don't think that that's going to happen any anytime soon, obviously. Um, but I do think that uh, the things that Trump is going to do um, is going to do during his term, I think that they're going to position a large swath of white America in in a place where, yes, a lot of white people are going to uh, start feeling a, um, a boot on their neck that they were not anticipating. And it's it's unfortunate um, that uh, that so many folks across white America have been duped into believing in whiteness uh, as it stands, because, you know, since the Civil War and even before that, so many white people who have more in common with me uh, as far as class goes than they do with Donald Trump think that they are better than me because of the fact that they have white skin and that is truly a tragedy because it is something that would be beneficial for folks who have more in common with me as far as class goes to understand that it would make sense for us to work together um, to um, 
to achieve the the equality and the 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 um the security that we we would both desire for our families and for our communities but it's just unfortunate that's why whiteness is the problem because these folks a lot to a large extent are 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 being tricked and it's it's something that that is um been happening for such a long time that I don't know if Donald Trump is is going to um, open eyes. I, I can't say that, but I do know that regardless of why these 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 folks in white America needing to open their eyes to the situation or not, we're I'm gonna I'm gonna be trying to survive and 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 live, and I'm gonna do what's necessary for for my survival and my family's survival, regardless of of that fact. So that's that's really um that's really on white america and white america has to deal with that problem i'm not really i'm not really going to concern myself with it to the extent that i'm gonna you know not do what i need to be doing so that's really the best way that i can answer it and hopefully your audience doesn't hate my response (laughs) i liked your response uh zoe our uh, question from hell for you is uh how much can democracy in the United States, how much can we vote white supremacy out of office? You can't. So our system doesn't work in getting rid of white supremacy. Democracy voting doesn't work in getting rid of white, democ- uh, getting rid of white supremacy. Democracy wasn't created to not have white supremacy. <laughs> so democracy was, or this political system was created to, to, to you know, it was, it was based upon this fetish for property rights, for accumulation of capital, and for hoarding, and for the inequitable distribution of capital. The system was created to to be inequitable and built into every single institution that props up the system is inequity. And so as we've, you know, kind of touched on multiple times throughout this, like, can we use an inequitable system to vote inequity out <laughs> of the system? No. And so I think there are strategic uses of this system because fundamental to my politics is this idea of harm reduction. And if we can get people to construct policies to to mitigate harm as much as possible, that is what I see the system serving ultimately. Potential for, you know, enabling programs and policies to get people access to resources to be able to survive. But survival is not the goal. It is to thrive. It is to flourish. It is to exist in a country where people are not having to walk down their street wondering if the cops are going to roll up on them or not. So can we use a quote unquote democratic system um, grounded in the removal and genocide of indigenous people and the enslavement of other people that revolves in so many ways around anti-blackness to alleviate any of those problems no we absolutely cannot well there's an answer from hell for you uh that's zoe samudzi on the line with us is william c anderson live from birmingham hey i just want to say one thing that sometimes when i hear really horrible horrible things i laugh and the reason that i laugh is because it gives me great joy to hear people speaking truth and uh it's very rare that you actually hear people being uh as honest especially on issues of race but on a, a lot of issues so when i hear horrible things yes i sometimes laugh so i apologize <laughs> laugh to get through it the you know laugh to mask the pain or something like exactly, that. exactly <laughs> exactly thank you very much for the diagnosis zoe. i appreciate it that's uh zoe samudzi and william c anderson they co-wrote the article the anarchism of blackness you gotta read it it's over at Roar Magazine. You can find a direct link at our website right now. This is hell.com. Thank you both so much for being on our show today. This really, really has been a great conversation. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for having us. All right. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. was a great interview this is dan hill back in 2022 your board operator for today just listen to zoe samudzi and william c anderson talking about the anarchism of blackness i really enjoyed that zoe and william wrote a book about a year after that interview 
was recorded called As Black as Resistance, Finding the Conditions for Liberation. It's got a forward by Miriam Kaba. It's put out by AK Press. I'll bet that's awesome. You should pick that up. I agree that electoral politics alone are entirely insufficient to address the structural racism inherent to both this nation and its present economic system. I really liked Zoe going after Switzerland. That had me laughing, but it's completely true. You stash Nazi blood money and everybody calls that neutral. It's definitely not neutral. And the DNC is the same way today when it compromises with an opponent that's never going to compromise. And William's point is well taken that if you want to organize outside the existing power structure, you have to look at the history of black rebellion. People have been doing this for a long time, and we need to build on it. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for listening in with me. Let's turn now to this week in Rotten History. Each week, Ronaldo Magaldi sends us a pretty huge bummer that occurred in this week, that occurred this week in history. And let's see what we've got. Uh, on July 12th, 1929, 93 years ago this week in North Platte, Nebraska, police responded to a domestic violence call at the Hummingbird Inn, a public, rent, a public lunchroom owned and operated by an African-American na- man named Louis Slim Seaman. The complaint was that Seaman, who lived in a space above the lunchroom, had battered a woman who was living with him. He was given the choice of either paying a $100 fine or leaving town immediately. He chose the latter, but the next day, police discovered that Seaman was still in town. When they went back to the Hummingbird Inn to look for him, one of them, a white former acting police chief named Edward Green, was shot and killed. Another cop found Seaman hiding in a crawl space under the ground floor. After refusing to come out, Seaman died by a, by a gunshot. That's a New York Times headline if I've ever heard one. The police later said that Slim Seaman had taken his own life, but among black people in the community, a rumor quickly spread that Seaman had been shot to death by a trigger-happy cop. That seems more likely. As tensions rose, a mob of white people, including Ku Klux Klan members, assembling the next day and began, assembled the next day and began circulating among the homes of black people, pounding on doors and warning the innocent law-abiding occupants of the town to get out of town. Within hours, virtually all of North Platte's several dozen black residents hurriedly fled by foot, train, and car to nearby cities of Grand Island and Lincoln, bringing only what they could carry and leaving behind their homes and other possessions. The white people who chased them away were later tried for illegal eviction and intimidation, but all were acquitted. A county sheriff later affirmed his intention of kicking the black folks out. He said, quote, the idea is to keep them out. Yuck. All right, that's this week's Rotten History, certainly living up to its name this week. That's just awful. But good ammunition for the next time you want to convince somebody that this is hell. Let's take a look at your answers to this week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is, who are you thanking for their service? Andrew S. said that this is hell producers. Oh my. Especially the one who is going to choose the winner. They're the best. I appreciate the sentiment. This week, that's probably going to be Lindsay. Let's see if that works. Justin G. says, D's. Oh! I'm going to read it again. Justin G. says, D's. That's poetry. It's stark. Powerful. Dan K. says, the guy who asked me if I want fries with that. Yeah, that's a good guy. Aaron D. says, Steve Bannon. I did hear that they were going to wheel out Bannon for the January 6th proceedings. I wonder if that's already happened. And if so, how it went. Chris H. says, Tim McVeigh. And that's a spicy one. That's about it for the new answers to this week's question from hell. If you have a response of your own to this week's question from hell, head on over to facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Post it, and if the selected answer, or if the uh, answer is selected tomorrow by Lindsay Gorey, as the very finest answer, it will be awarded with some This Is Hell merchandise. Of course, if you want to short-circuit the entire thing and purchase the merchandise directly, and in so doing, support the work we are doing here, you can head over to thisishell.com and just click on Store. 
Let me tell you about this This Is Art show that's happening. Saturday, July 23rd at 2 p.m. This Is Hell is honored to be part of the 50th anniversary celebration of Carrie's Lounge with This Is Art 2022 at Second Story Studios above Carrie's. That's where I'm talking to you from right now. This, this, uh, the first This Is Art since the pandemic, since before the pandemic, will be curated by the amazing animator and visual artist Lisa Barcy. Come grab a drink downstairs and then stagger up to gaze in wonderment at the cornucopia of art from some of your favorite Chicago artists. There will also be zines, prints, and other merch. Tell your rich art-buying relatives. All proceeds go directly to the artists themselves, as we never take any commission. You don't hear that too often. Uh, let's see. Tomorrow, we're going to have Lindsay Gore in playing an interview with Anna Tsing from 2015 about her book, The Mushroom at the End of the World which explains why collaborative survival in the future requires a radical reimagining of growth, modernity, and progress. That's going to be awesome. I think she will also have a um, a moment of truth for you from Jeff Dorchin. I look forward to that. I will be in next week. Until then. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>